You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Hi everyone, this is Scott from the Ancient World Podcast. If you want to learn the story of human history from the first civilizations down through the Hellenistic and Roman eras, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbay, or at ancientworldpodcast.com. Thanks for supporting freeform independent podcasting. I came, I saw, I flailed. It's been months since you bid Mark Antony farewell on the banks of the river Euphrates, watched him march off toward the low, dusty hills at the head of his army, his shoulders straight and his spirits high as if he'd already won this war. You watch the news from Rome of his triumphs and conquests, the people dancing in the streets, sacrificing in his name to the gods. And now, after months, this message, you read it again just to be sure. Come quickly, do not delay. Bring food and supplies and money. Lots of money. His hand is rude and inelegant, a hasty scrawl on a scrap of skin, and there's desperation in every stroke. Something's gone horribly wrong. Parthia is a land of burning deserts and sharp, stony mountains, poison rivers and people who brook no trespass. Caesar had planned three years for his own invasion, and as little as you know of war, you know this. Parthia cannot be conquered in a matter of months. He shouldn't be back this soon. You'd begged him not to go. Come back to Alexandria, you told him. Stay with me beneath the palm fronds. Let us sip chilled wine with all the sea and sky spread out before us. Let us live and love in my city, the jewel in the eye of the world. But Antony had to have his victory, and so once again you let him go. Some among your advisors suggest that you let him languish. Choose another from among the Roman aristocracy, they say, one with a better grip on power. But now you can feel his need pulling at you from across the sea, and you know you will not abandon him. 
You're a practical soul, willing to do what must be done, but even you wouldn't turn on Antony. So you go down to the docks, impatient to see to the preparations yourself, ships stuffed to the rafters with thick wool clothes, barrels of wine, food for the hungry, and money. Mark Antony always needs money. He's out there somewhere, hungry and desperate and alone, watching the horizon. Every day you don't cross is another day he despairs. Finally, the tides turn. Your ships are supplied and they're ready to go, and you stand at the helm with the wind at your back. Beneath your feet, the seams of the ship creak with every forward stroke of the rowers. You close your eyes and you send him a message in the quiet of your mind. You're coming. Just a few more nights on that snowy strip of beach. You'll show him. You keep your promises. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm a robot rowboat. <laughs> and this is Ancient History Fangirl. So, in our last episode, Mark Antony had spent a really intense few months in Alexandria with Cleopatra, and the two fell head over heels in love. Swoon! So swoon. But it was not to last, because Antony's wife, Fulvia, the badass boss bitch that she was, picked a fight with Octavian, whose face you kind of just want to slap. Anyway, as a result of this big old fight, Antony was forced to go back to Greece to deal with the whole fallout. In the aftermath of that, Antony and Fulvia had a massive row. Fulvia fell into a terrible depression and died. Or maybe it was poisoned. I'm team poison. I don't know that I'm on necessarily any team. <laughs> I don't, I'm not taking a stand here. It could have been either one. <laughs> I mean, it could have been either one. It's the ancient world. But I mean, if there's a chance that I can advocate that there is a poison assassin working behind the scenes, I'm always going to be like, that is my choice. All the intrigue. Bear in mind that there were no antibiotics back then. So she could have just gotten a really bad infection or something. Yeah, she could have just scraped her hand on a on a rusty hairpin. On the hairpin that she stabbed through Cicero's tongue. Still got uh, Cicero cooties on that hairpin. Cicero still has quite a bite. Boom! The revenge of Cicero. <laughs> There's nothing in the historical record to indicate that happened. This is the pure speculation that you sign up for in this podcast. So in order to secure a peace, Antony married Octavian's sister, Octavia, and this was the band-aid that patched up the second triumvirate and prevented a civil war. So well done, because women have to be thrown into the role of marrying someone to keep peace. Yeah, we talked about that in episode two. Antony had spent several happy years married to Octavia, but his relationship with her brother Octavian had devolved to the point where they could barely be in the same room together. So around 36 BC, about four years into her marriage to Antony, Octavia helped negotiate an arms deal where Antony gave Octavian ships to go fight Sextus Pompey, the pirate. Arrgh! <laughs> We're just doing this every time Sextus Pompey comes up now. And Octavian promised Antony 20,000 ships to help him fight the Parthians, who are currently raising trouble in the east. Then Mark Antony went off to go deal with the Parthians, and he sent Octavia home to Italy with their two daughters. He never saw her again. The minute he got to his military base in Syria, he sent for Cleopatra. So this is a point in the story where historians argue about what led to this. Yes, Antony had spent four or five or six, I don't know, really intense months with Cleopatra and Alexandria, but that's basically all, you know? Like, it really surprises me that they didn't spend that long together. But at this point, he'd been married to Octavia for four years, and he really seemed to love Octavia. Not to mention, Octavia had just stepped in to help him negotiate with Octavian, proving herself indispensable to Antony. They had two daughters together. He seemed really settled and happy with Octavia, so why did he send for Cleopatra? Plutarch chalks Antony's behavior up to passion. He says, quote, the dire evil which had been slumbering for a long time. 
namely his passion for Cleopatra, which men thought had been charmed away and lulled to rest by better considerations, blazed up with renewed power as he drew near to Syria. Did my voice give you the eye roll I'm feeling? Like everything Plutarch (laughs) says prompts an eye roll from this corner. The thing is, that still doesn't answer the question, why now? Beyond Antony's feelings, there was a practical reason to send for Cleopatra. She was the richest and most powerful client ruler among Antony's provinces in the east. He needed her financial support to invade Parthia. So as long as that was his goal, it was only a matter of time before Antony and Cleopatra had to be in a room together again. Looking at it from that angle, it only makes sense for him to send her a message now. Some argue that Antony had absolutely no intention of starting up his affair with Cleopatra again. He just meant to get her financial support to fight the Parthians. Others suggest that he was open to starting an affair because Mark Antony was, let's face it, not big on monogamy. Because let's face it, another word to describe Mark Antony is open. 24 hours, seven days a week. (laughs) There's always an open sign flashing over his forehead. Exactly. He's exactly the kind of creepy hotel you find down a dark desert highway. The Mark Antony Hotel. Don't ask, don't tell. You can check in, but you never leave. (laughs) Anyway, but according to this argument, he didn't anticipate necessarily breaking things off with Octavia to be with Cleopatra. But there's another piece of the puzzle here, Antony's relationship with Octavian, Octavia's brother. We talked about how this relationship had devolved in the last episode. It's possible that turning back to Cleo was, in part, a rebellion against Octavian, who, despite the agreement of Tarentum, had delivered one insult too many. We'll never really know for sure, but we do know that Cleopatra had absolutely no ambivalence about Mark Antony. This time, when she got his message, Cleopatra did not delay or bother with silver oars and incense. She got on a fast ship, bringing her two children with Antony, and sailed immediately to meet him. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hello, listeners. This is Ann Bogle, author, blogger, and creator of the podcast, What Should I Read Next? Since 2016, I've been helping readers bring more joy and delight into their reading lives. Every week, I tech all things books and reading with a guest and guide them in discovering their next read. They share three books they love, one book they don't, and what they've been reading lately. And I recommend three titles they may enjoy reading next. Guests have said our conversations are like therapy, troubleshooting issues that have plagued their reading lives for years and possibly the rest of their lives as well. 
And of course, recommending books that meet the moment, whether they are looking for deep introspection to spur or encourage a life change or a frothy page turner to help them escape the stresses of work, school, everything. You'll learn something about yourself as a reader, and you'll definitely walk away confident to choose your next read with a whole list of new books and authors to try. So join us each Tuesday for What Should I Read Next? Subscribe now wherever you're listening to this podcast and visit our website, whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com to find out more. Cleopatra and Antony hadn't seen each other for about four years. The two met in Antioch, a city in modern-day Turkey, and it must have been a happy, passionate reunion if we're going with the theory that Antony meant this meeting to be a platonic, practical discussion about army supplies and logistics, or if he only meant to start up a casual fling. Well, that is not how this went down. Mark Antony caved fast. Oh, surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. He caved about as fast as one of those uh, collapsible toothbrushes. He's collapsible furniture. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's a good metaphor for Mark Antony. Anyway, Mark caves so fast, Antony was like, I'm done. Five minutes after Cleopatra was in Antioch, he'd acknowledged the three-year-old twins as his own, something Caesar had never done with Caesarian, and then started showering Cleopatra with territories. He made her ruler of Cyprus, a land historically belonging to Egypt, which Rome had requisitioned about 22 years ago. He also threw in other territories like Cyrene, parts of Cilicia, Syria, and Crete, and a string of cities all up and down the Phoenician coast. These territories were rich in natural resources and enriched Cleopatra greatly. He also granted her part of Judea, the part where the country's richest exports came from. Antony rearranged monarchs and dynasties in order to make Cleopatra the undisputed ruler of many of these territories, and this greatly raised her status as a ruler. It restored to Egypt almost all the lands it had controlled in the days of Ptolemy I and lost since. To celebrate Antony's generosity, Cleopatra introduced a new dating system. Wait, was this like an ancient world Tinder? Um, <laughs> it's a date, right, it's a dating platform for client queens who want to hook up with powerful Roman protectors. <laughs> It'd be her public service to other client queens who are like, I guess I need a powerful Roman backer. Don't swipe on Lepidus, guys. We know he has a big army and we know he's super nice, especially to women and his wife, but... He's not going to do so good when it comes to the military backing part. I mean, that's the problem. Lepidus is good at keeping the peace, but not at getting you new territories. He is good at keeping the peace. He could roll in and like calm everyone down and make everyone tea and make sure everyone sees eye to eye. That's how Lepidus handles things. Yeah, Lepidus is a really good calming influence. He did win some early military battles. Caesar did trust him. We do know he loved his wife. He's the littlest triumvir. Aw. Well, let's move on from here. Cleopatra did not introduce the new ancient world Tinder. What she did, (laughs) it's not the case. Oh, I'm deeply disappointed, Cleopatra. I had high hopes. Sorry. What she did was introduce a new system of dating, referring to the year of Antony's gifts as year one in her official record. So a new calendar system. When you think about Cleopatra and you think about the stroking of Antony's ego that was needed, makes total sense. She's just like, there were no years in this new millennia until you came along and gifted me things, Antony. And Antony was like, that is true. <laughs> it's yet more stroking and petting. You were the year one of my life, Antony. Swoon. She bestowed on herself elaborate new titles, and a few months after her arrival in Antioch, she was pregnant again with her third child with Mark Antony. Surprise! <laughs> she's super fertile, or he's super fertile, and she's super fertile. I think they're both super fertile. He's one of those people that, like, looks at you intensely, and you have to go take a pregnancy test. Well, you know why, right? Germanicus, I know, the connection. And Agrippina! The fertility runs hot. 
in the jeweler Claudian line. Meanwhile, Antony continued his preparations for Parthia and was ready to depart in the spring. Cleopatra traveled with him hundreds of miles out of her way to bid him farewell on the banks of the Euphrates River in eastern Turkey. Then she watched Antony march off to war with his army, and Cleopatra took the long way home, touring each one of her newly gifted territories because she didn't mean to just be a ruler from afar. She meant to actually legitimately rule in all of these new territories. It makes sense when you think about her background. Like, she was, like, kicked out of her own territory. So she wanted to know who these people were. And also just make sure that all this new money and stuff comes to her. You know, all the tribute. Absolutely. Send it my way or else. Exactly. You think you're not going to actually pay taxes to me? Well, I'm here to disabuse you of that misconception. This is not an honorary position. (laughs) One of the things Cleopatra did on her way home was visit King Herod, the ruler of Judea, who'd suddenly found the profitable parts of his country ripped out from under him. Murderous plotting ensued, and it's kind of a rabbit hole, so we're not going to go into it here, but we are going to do a mini-sode on it. Actually, two mini-sodes. It's our first mini-arc, Jen. We heard the term mini-sode and we're like, we don't know how to do anything under a half an hour, so (laughs) maxi-sode! We broke it up, though, because it's basically got two parts, but it's King Herod and Cleopatra wouldn't touch you with a barge pole because these two loathed each other. It'll drop on December 5th and January 2nd, unless we hit our next Patreon goal super fast, which is $500 a month. If we do that, we're going to start releasing these twice a month, and then you'll get it sooner. I don't know. I'm not in the future. I don't know what's going to happen. So after her grand tour, Cleopatra went home to Egypt. And for the next few months, from spring into summer, she kept track of the news from Rome of all the great things Antony was doing in Parthia. People in Rome were celebrating his many and glorious victories. They were performing sacrifices to the gods and throwing citywide festivals in his honor. It was very clear that Antony was killing it in Parthia. Well done, Antony. Doing such a good job subjugating the Parthians this is what you set out to do and you had a plan and you achieved it and you didn't need Caesar's help. This is where kind of broken down older Romans go to die all across this, but it's fine. It's fine, Antony. We're not going to poke a hole in that or anything. Here's the thing. In the year, of the <laughs> late in the year of 36 BC, a messenger arrived at Cleopatra's court. He implored Cleopatra to come quickly. Antony was camped out in a small village near modern-day Beirut with a harbor deep enough for a luxury yacht flotilla. Antony said to come as soon as she could and bring food, clothing, and most importantly, money. Because when Mark Antony is involved, you're always going to need to bankroll something. Oh God, he always needs money. Always. There was something a little off about this message. It had only been a few months. No way Antony had conquered all of Parthia that quickly. Caesar had planned to spend at least three years there. Turns out invading Parthia was a big mistake. I am shocked. 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 Shocker. Shocker. I mean, we've never seen any general of Rome go into Parthia and have a bad time. They've always come back saying water slides and ice cream. Julius Caesar, what do you think of this? Mark Antony, can you not see a trap? Can you not smell it? Did you not have enough experience in the Gallic Wars to understand when you are being tricked by a boy half your age? What we're about to reveal in the telling of Mark Antony's time in Parthia is that Mark Antony indeed could not smell a trap if it farted in his face. Julius Caesar is very disappointed as a master and one who could spot a trap 50 miles away. How could I have had a protege like Antony who was unable to detect even the slightest form of subtlety? I mean, not to bring up painful memories or anything, but there are a few key points in your life where you did not smell a trap. But didn't I? Um. (laughs) 
Well, one does learn from one's mistakes and one betters oneself and becomes dictator and living God. I mean, I'm an atheist. I don't think there are gods. <laughs> you do believe in Julius Caesar. <laughs> well, touche. I do. I do believe in Julius Caesar. <laughs> and now you're a dead god. Okay, we're moving on. From the minute he got to Parthia, you could see Antony using Julius Caesar's playbook. And Caesar, this is not an invitation to butt in. Okay. Well, Julius Caesar knows that if Antony was using his playbook, he clearly hadn't read all the way through. He just read some bullet points and didn't actually give him the steps he needed to succeed. Oh, Antony, do better. Julius Caesar's getting worked up. So you're saying he read the Cliff Notes version if he read it at all. He lived most of it. You would have thought that he actually learned something. But I guess all that time fucking around and puking in the Senate house must have killed quite a few brain cells. Oh, Julius Caesar knows about brain cells. Julius Caesar knows about many things. I wrote a book about grammar. So, um, we're gonna, we're gonna move on. I dedicated that book to a one Cicero. Who, Moving on. It was an ironic dedication. I can't believe I wrote this sentence and now I have to say it because now I'm aggrandizing Caesar who's sitting right next to me looking excited about me aggrandizing him. One does love to hear oneself spoken so highly of from the lips of Ms. Jenny Williamson. Oh, God, stop. <laughs> evil laugh. It's just literally the truth. Mark Antony was no Julius Caesar. He tried to seize the element of surprise, pushing his army to move fast through rugged terrain. But to move fast, he had to abandon his massive siege equipment and other stuff that he needed. Leaving his siege engines behind cost him badly the first time he tried to besiege a city. His army took forever raising earthworks and they were surrounded and slain by horse archers who were allies of the besieged before they could even come close to breaking into the city. The Parthian horse archers were a problem. They were constantly luring Antony's army to attack and then melting off into the desert, leading Antony's army on pointless, draining chases. Mark Antony ran out of supplies and his people started to starve. Bands of Parthians attacked his men whenever they tried to forage for food. Over and over, the Parthians lured him into ambushes and kicked his army's ass. One of the Parthians' favorite tricks was to send their soldiers wandering around Antony's camp with their bows unstrung, which was a sign of peace, mingling with them as they foraged for food and just kind of casually chatting and shooting the shit. There was some fraternizing. The Parthians would be super friendly. They'd complain about their own generals and compliment the Roman soldiers on their excellent fighting skills and hardiness in the tough terrain. Hey, wow, you guys are really good fighters. You're doing so well. Look at this bison! And look at those delts. I mean, yeah. We're all really impressed over here on the Parthian side, let me tell you. It's not as if we couldn't just like restring this bow immediately and kill you before you could breathe. It's fine. And also, wow, look at the big horsehair plumes on your helmets, which are totally not making up for a sensitivity about being short. They were shorter than everyone else. Yeah, it's like built into their like xenophobia about the Gauls. The Gauls were all tall, hairy giants. All the penises on classical statues are small for that reason as well. Oh, what reason? I'm pretty sure I read this somewhere that like having like a a big penis. Just a monster dong. It was like a sign of like low birth and low standing. So that's why a lot of times in like classical artwork, the dongs are not that big. I always wondered why the dongs were teensy. I mean, I always assumed they were growers, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly hope they were growers. I'm just like looking at a big nude statue of Hercules or something. And I'm like, I'm disappointed, deeply disappointed. Like I'm like 97% sure it's true. Anyway, inevitably, the Parthians would sort of casually suggest that Antony didn't want to take that route down through the plains. Definitely not. That was the route where Crassus got his head chopped off. Remember him? Yeah, don't take that route. Definitely take this other route through the mountains. A route 
That turned out in hindsight to be extremely ambushy. The problem was that Antony just had zero guile, and he had a hard time with the idea of other people being totally shady liars. Over and over in Parthia, you see him believing people he shouldn't believe and trusting people he shouldn't trust. He listened to Parthian guides who led his army into traps. Local allies promised to send troops and supplies and then conveniently forgot. Whoopsie. Even Octavian never sent those 20,000 troops he promised at Tarentium. Oh, Miss Williamson. Oh, hold up. Julius Caesar has an opinion. Does the man have no common sense? He had this general named Ventidius, didn't he? Yeah, Ventidius actually kicked out the Parthians from Rome's Asian territories. Ventidius was used to fighting the Parthians. Yes. Where was Ventidius? What groundwork did he lay? Did he get to know the different tribes and the different people and who he could trust and where was a safe route? Who was doing the research? You can't just trust men wandering through a battlefield with unstrung bows, just telling you how wonderful you are. They're clearly lying. Where? Where, Mark Antony, was your box of disguises? Who were you sending in amongst the Parthians, blending in to see what their culture is like? When you look at what Julius Caesar did, not to aggrandize Julius Caesar, but when you look at... Oh, it's not aggrandizing when it's true, Miss Williamson. Okay, I'm gonna make my point. It's just a true fact. Look at what Julius Caesar did, Jen, right? In Gaul, Julius Caesar was always turning tribes against each other, and he knew who the tribes were, and he knew what the alliances were, and he was always using that to his benefit, you know, to like divide and conquer. And I'm not seeing Antony doing that here. Like, I just wonder if he's falling down with the intelligence. Julius Caesar would like to remind you that this is why it takes more than a whim to invade Parthia. There are so many things that you must do if you don't want to suffer defeat at the hands of ridiculousness. Is that what's happening right now? Mark Antony is suffering defeat at the hands of ridiculousness. Julius Caesar knows that in order to effectively invade anywhere, you must build up your spy network. You must know the people you're fighting. It's very clear that if Antony had spent less time fucking about with my grandniece in Athens, he would have understood his enemy. He would have been able to mount a campaign knowing where was safe, who he could trust, and who he could turn. And instead, he just blundered into it like the war elephant he is. You know, he might have done better if he had a war elephant, which were extremely outdated by that anyway. Well, I don't know if he would have done better. I mean, this is a really dry area and um, war elephants need a lot of water. Julius Caesar was using the thing known as sarcasm. Julius Caesar, I think it's time to elevate your game. This is the lowest form of wit. As Ms. Williamson said, when you're invading somewhere dry like Parthia and you leave all your siege engines behind to move faster... You run the risk of not being able to rebuild your siege engines and earthworks at all because there's no wood, because you don't know the terrain. When you haven't done your research and you leave behind valuable things, you're not actually thinking about what you're going to need when you besiege a town. And this was a very key, crucial error that Antony made. His other errors are he's not secured a fresh water supply anywhere. That is a massive problem in the area he's fighting. A lot of stupid mistakes here. But despite his many and varied screw-ups, Antony was a beloved commander. Here's what Antony did right, okay? If we're going to be fair, he shared his troops' hardships, visited the wounded, suffered and starved along with them. There was that time he decimated a legion because of poor performance. Like, he wasn't a master manipulator. No, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, Antony, this is Jen. Antony is definitely a war elephant. If he could fix it quickly by being a lad amongst the men, great. If he couldn't, decimation man. I ain't got time. The army was not well provisioned. Even when they found grain growing in fields, turned out they'd abandoned all their implements for grinding it, which 
is just like a fundamental mistake. I guess those were with the siege engines. The troops were forced to forage in a land where they weren't familiar with the plants, and out of ignorance or starvation, many ate plants that were poisonous. Plutarch says some troops ate plants that drove them mad or killed them, and he describes, quote, He who ate of these poison plants had no memory and no thought of anything else than the one task of moving or turning every stone as if he were accomplishing something of great importance. The plain was full of men stooping to the ground and digging around the stones or removing them, and finally they would vomit bile and die since the only remedy, wine, was not to be had. Probably because Mark Antony drank it all. That thing about the turning the stones and everything else, like, again... It's really haunting, right? So haunting. And not to give Caesar another name check, but he was kind of right. The most important thing to do was set up some way of carrying water. This is an arid environment, and water becomes a big issue pretty quickly. At one point, Antony was stuck force marching his troops through a mountain range over 30 miles in a single night because some shady Parthians with their bows unstrung told them that this was the safest route. There was no water on this route. The men were trying to carry water in their helmets. That's how thirsty they were. At dawn, they were viciously attacked by Parthians. After that, they came upon a river full of poisoned salty water. A large number of desperately thirsty troops drank from it and got horrible stomach cramps and died. Things got really bad. At one point, Antony contemplated suicide. Finally, after several debilitating marches through a string of ambushes, Antony and his troops made it to safer ground. He discovered that more than half of his troops had died, about 20,000 infantry and 4,000 cavalry, more from disease than attack. He lost 8,000 more men on a winter march to the sea. Finally, he and his remaining troops reached a little town called White Village, not far from modern-day Beirut, on the coast, and there he sent for Cleopatra. Plutarch tells us that Antony was desperate for Cleopatra to come. He was, quote, beside himself with distress. He drank heavily, and he couldn't sit down at dinner for five minutes before jumping up to run to the beach and see if Cleopatra's sails had yet appeared on the horizon. So when she arrived, Cleopatra found Antony's army in tatters, and Antony huddling in a blanket fort, a wild-eyed, drunken, unshaven, freaked-out mess. She distributed food, clothes, blankets, and supplies to the troops. She tucked Antony in bed with a hot drink and patted his head and said, there, there there a lot, and Antony started to feel a little better. But she wasn't the only woman who raced to Antony's side to pet and coddle him. Octavia had also heard Antony was in trouble and immediately assembled 2,000 elite bodyguards plus food, armor, clothes, and other much-needed supplies and set sail to go be at her husband's side. Make no mistake, whether Octavia intended it to be or not, this was yet another ambush. Octavian signed off on this trip. He encouraged his sister to go. He may have even suggested it, and he knew exactly what he was doing, causing a serious optics problem for Mark Antony. He knew Cleopatra had gotten there first, and Antony would not want Octavia to show up on his doorstep. But if Antony sent Octavia away, it would be a deadly insult to Octavia, to her brother, and to the Roman public itself. He'd be repudiating an exemplary Roman wife in favor of that scheming Eastern Queen Cleopatra. Feel bad for Octavia here because I'm not 100% sure that she foresaw this outcome. But also... I'm not sure Cleopatra's scheming here. Like, she's just going to the father of her three children. Well, the thing is, that's how the Romans saw her. And Octavia, I don't think Octavia was particularly political unless she was extremely velvet glove. I think this would have been a personal mission for her, but Octavian would be delighted to put Antony in this position. Women in, in the position Octavia is in 
really have to be careful because so much of their safety comes from the men that they're tied to. And when you have men who are maneuvering the way Octavian and Antony are, you find yourself in really hot water. And I really feel like Octavia does fairly well to survive as long as she does. And she does make it to old age, I think. Oh, yeah, she does. And I think that's a really good point because Octavia refuses to repudiate Antony, but she's also not going against her brother. Like she's really hedging her bets a lot. Yeah, I mean, she's playing the game that Cleopatra was playing in the first episode. The stakes for her are just as high as they were for Cleopatra because one wrong move and she could find herself exiled or murdered by either her husband or her brother. And Octavian was ruthless. He exiled his own daughter. That's like later on in his history. Obviously, we're not going to talk about that now, but he does turn against other family members and you see that throughout his life. So even though he's really close to Octavia, that doesn't necessarily make her safe. And I'm sure she knew that. Absolutely. So let's move on. Whether or not Antony really understood the trouble he was in right now, Cleopatra smelled the trap immediately. She knew Octavia's visit was a direct challenge to her. And as brilliant of a ruler as she was, Cleo relied on Roman patronage to keep her throne. She had to keep Antony hers. She could not let him start up with Octavia again. So, according to Plutarch at least, she resorted to guilt and tears. Plutarch says Cleopatra, quote, pretended to be passionately in love with Antony. He doesn't even consider that her feelings might have been genuine here. The ancient sources tell us that Cleopatra stopped eating, she lost weight, she burst into tears at the slightest provocation, and when Antony entered the room, she would try, not that subtly, to hide her sniffles. It's like, what's wrong, babe? (laughs) Nothing. You're just gonna put me aside for that Roman woman even though I came here first and I love you and I take care of you and we have three children together and you only have two with her. It's nothing, it's fine. Go ahead, take the last light bulb. I'll sit here in the dark. I've seen this happen before. Caesar did this to me. I thought you were better than Caesar. I'm still not over it, but I'm totally over it. It's fine. It's fine. I'm totally cool. I'm a cool girl. I'm not upset. I'm not upset. I'm not. Ah. So she would look at Antony all dewy-eyed when he was around, like sigh, swoon, and grew inconsolable when he left. And as she was doing all this, the people in her entourage were laying the guilt on thick. They upbraided Antony for being so cruel and hard-hearted as to even consider favoring Octavia over Cleopatra. They reminded him that Octavia had married him because she'd been ordered to, but Cleopatra was with him purely for love. She didn't even have the title of his wife, and she was fine with that. She didn't ask for anything. Cleopatra just gave. Cleopatra asked for nothing and gave everything, they said. All she ever wanted was to be in Antony's presence and gaze adoringly at him. Swoon! Swoon! Cleopatra's servants strongly implied that if Antony were to leave her now, she might well waste away and die. And this particular suggestion had to be triggering for Antony because it was exactly what had happened to his last wife, Fulvia, unless she was poisoned, but Antony thought she'd wasted away and died for him. And that's the important thing. And Antony was a people pleaser. So the guilt offensive worked in spectacular fashion. Some writers have suggested Antony had a little bit of a submissive streak. As big of a war elephant as he was, he loved being scolded and ordered around by a strong woman, which was why he was so attracted to them. But whatever psychosexual dynamics were at play here, Antony's actions speak for themselves. He sent Octavia packing back to Rome with her gifts and went with Cleopatra to Alexandria. Unsurprising no one, this did not play well in Rome. A similar situation had played out about five years ago when Octavian was at odds with Fulvia, Mark Antony's wife. Octavian had married Fulvia's daughter, Claudia Poultra, as a way to secure the second triumvirate. But during his conflict with Fulvia, Octavian had sent her back to her mom. 
saying scornfully that she was still a virgin. It was a stinging rejection of Claudia as a wife and also a deadly insult to Fulvia. On that pretext, Fulvia declared war against Octavian. Now, Antony was basically pulling the same thing on Octavian, sending his sister back to him, rejecting her, even if his intentions weren't necessarily to reject Octavia per se, even if he'd been emotionally manipulated, even if he was genuinely terrified that the same thing might happen to Cleopatra that had happened to Fulvia if he left her too, this looked really bad to the Roman people. He was throwing off Rome for Egypt. It did not endear him to the Roman public. Antony had just given Octavian a lot of raw material for his own propaganda campaign. And this was bad because while Antony had been thrashing around in Parthia, just kind of flailing, Octavian had been building up his own power base in Rome to the point where he was dangerous. By this point, the second triumvirate had devolved while Octavian had been fighting the pirate Sextus Pompey, which he'd been doing while Mark Antony was in Parthia, Lepidus had tried to use the confusion to his advantage and take over Sicily. He and Octavian had an argument over that, at the end of which Octavian stripped Lepidus of all his titles and sent him to live in exile. So the second triumvirate was gone. Octavian now set about raising his social status. On the day his wife Scribonia gave birth to their daughter, because this is just the kind of guy Octavian is, he divorced her to marry a woman named Livia Drusilla. On the day his wife gave birth, he divorced her. Marriage to her aligned Octavian with a very highly placed Claudii family, rocketing him up to the highest echelons of Roman society. Previously, Antony had had the better lineage, and this is where the Julio-Claudians come from. After marrying Livia and doing away with Lepidus, Octavian started to turn the Roman public and senators against Antony. To the senatorial class and the Roman public, Octavian painted Antony as a scoundrel and a womanizer who'd abandoned his virtuous wife in favor of the slutty, scheming Egyptian queen. I roll. Octavia wouldn't speak a negative word about Antony when she returned to Rome, even though he'd refused to see her. She'd also refused to leave Antony's house, which would have amounted to repudiating him in public. She begged her brother not to start a war with Antony over her. She definitely did not want to be the new Helen of Troy, a woman two powerful men went to war over. I definitely think the lady doth protest too much here. Well, I have some thoughts about this. So the thing about Octavia here is because she's still married to Antony, she gets to live in his house. She's not under the rule of her brother or her husband. She's got a lot of freedom. Yes, she's raising almost an orphanage of Antony's children at this point in time, but... We should do like the count of children now in Octavia's house. She's got two with Antony. Antony and Fulvia's kids are there, and I think she's got three of her own kids with Marcellus, which was her previous husband. And does she have any of Antony's or his first wife? Um, so there's Antonia Prima, who was Antony's daughter with his very first wife or his second wife or something and she I believe is married by now and this count like some of these kids are older some they married them super young at like 14 or something so I don't know exactly how many were definitely living in Octavia's house at any one time yeah and remember I mean she had a lot of people doing a lot of work for her she wasn't doing night feedings or anything like that yeah she had a lot of freedom and being married gave her some protection she wouldn't have had as a single woman especially if she was back under her brother's roof so it's possible that she actually didn't mind the situation. Maybe she took a couple lovers. What's interesting here is how much strategy Jen is seeing in Octavia's behavior because she's painted as such a guileless, perfect, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth woman. But actually, if you look a little closer, there is quite a bit of strategy in what she does. Yeah. And again, I'm thinking back to that arc on the Julian Claudians in the ancient world Stark family. And I'm thinking back to how I felt about Agrippina the Younger after her sister is murdered. And what I found about that is in order to play this game, sometimes you you have to just like 
be incredibly quiet and you get what you want. We see this later with, I believe it's Octavia's granddaughters or daughters who play this game and live into their 80s and don't want to get remarried. Mm -hmm. But Octavian was happy to use his sister's public rejection as a pretext, loudly lamenting how Antony had humiliated her. And he loudly accused Antony of, quote, going native, a racist colonialist term that referred to colonizers adopting the customs of the people they were colonizing, which was seen as uncivilized and generally a bad thing to the Romans and still a horrible racist colonialist term. I mean, present day and past tense, but when Romans came and took over a community, like when they conquered and colonized a different culture, they saw themselves as being a civilizing force and saw imposing Roman culture as a good thing. And it wasn't supposed to work the other way around. No, I mean, they were supposed to indoctrinate the people who they colonized into their culture. And the Romans were actually really good at this. It's why you see a lot of when we talk about things like Saturnalia and different Roman festivals, you see a lot of other people's cultures mixed in because the Romans were like, okay, well, we're not going to say you can't have this festival. We're just going to rename it with one of our gods. Take the stuff you like about it. Put in some stuff we like. Totally appropriate and recontextualize this festival in a Roman way so that no matter what you do, even when you try to celebrate your own festivals and holidays, you're being Roman. Exactly. But at the moment, Antony shrugged all this off that Octavian was saying about him in Rome. Octavian could talk until he was blue in the face, and he probably was honestly right this minute blue in the face. But the people of Rome did not want another civil war. Octavian was just a 28-year-old kid who kept calling in sick to his own battles. If he ever shut his mouth for long enough to get an army together, Antony would worry then. In 35 BC, Antony went back to Alexandria with Cleopatra. She was around 34 years old at this point, and he was about 48. And this was exactly where Cleopatra wanted him, at her side, spending time with her and their three kids, Alexander Helios, Cleopatra Selene, and now little Ptolemy Philadelphus, his new son. They're a family. Parthia had been Mark Antony's first real military defeat, and it had been a big, disastrous one. Antony decided he needed a victory. Nothing too big or ambitious, but something he literally could not fuck up. Oh boy, has he met himself? I know. (laughs) Has he met himself? And something he could use to keep his men loyal because keeping the troops loyal is all about giving them victories and opportunities to plunder. So a few months after going back to Alexandria, he started looking around for an easy target. He settled on the king of Armenia, Artavastes. He had been one of those allies who'd promised but never delivered troops and supplies to Antony while he was in Parthia. So a little bit of a grudge here. Now, Antony sent a message to him proposing a royal marriage. How about Artabastes betrothed his daughter to six-year-old Alexander Helios? I mean, Alexander Helios is single. He's single. He's six. He's ready to mingle. So ready to mingle. I literally can't see how this would possibly go wrong. Listen, he's he's prepared to put his Legos down and come over a courting. He's so cute. His little courting outfit like he's got his little Caligula boots on. Yeah, we don't approve of child marriage. We're just going to put that out there in case you were wondering. (laughs) It was a betrothal, not a marriage. So there's no way he would be married before the age of majority when he could actually marry her. It's just a long engagement. This betrothal would have been a big deal and it would have cemented a peace between them. So Artavasti is saying, no, well, that's a problem. Oh, man. Antony sent him like the cute little postcard with the cute little kids and circled Alexander Helios and was like, how about this one? And Artavastes was just <laughs> not having it. Nope. Oh. So Antony sees this opportunity to be mortally insulted. I am mortally insulted. Honor is at stake. Honor was at stake. Artavastes 
turned down that offer as Antony knew he would because it was a trap. Antony declared war. And unlike the Parthian War, this one was easy. Antony marched his legions in, beat up on the Armenians, helped himself to Artavastes' loot, and dragged Artavastes and his whole family back to Alexandria to walk in a triumph or a walk of shame for the people who were conquered. And what a triumph Cleopatra threw for him. Antony rode in a lavish chariot wearing his purple cloak up the sphinx-lined canopic avenue to present his royal prisoners, Artavastes and his wife and kids, to Cleopatra in chains. Cleopatra received them, decked out in her most elaborate ceremonial Isis costume, atop a golden throne, raised on a silver platform, thronged by worshipful subjects. King Artavastes was proud. He refused to bow to Cleopatra or use her royal titles, a deadly insult. But Cleo got over it quickly moving on to the lavish feasting and partying. The celebrations went on for several days. Toward the end, in a massive spectacle in the public gymnasium, Antony showered Cleopatra and their children with territories in a paroxysm of generosity, later referred to as the Donations of Alexandria. Alexander Helios got Medea, Armenia, and Parthia, which Antony didn't even control. Which Antony had not successfully conquered. Don't know how that worked. But it's like marched right in there. Like, <laughs> I came, I saw, I flailed. That is really the story of Antony. Anyway, Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was about two years old at this point, got Cilicia, Phoenicia, and Syria. To Cleopatra Selene went the Greek settlement of Cyrene. Caesarian got acknowledged as the natural son of Caesar, and Antony issued new coins with Cleopatra's face on them. She became the first foreign woman with her face on a Roman coin. <laughs> which always happens. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, look, it's not an ancient history fangirl episode if somebody doesn't get their face on a Roman coin for the first time. Especially if it's a woman. Yeah, but it turned out that as lavish as his gifts were to Cleopatra and their children that day, the biggest gift Antony gave was all the propaganda material he dropped in Octavian's lap. There were a ton of things wrong with the donations from a Roman perspective. First off, triumphs were not supposed to be celebrated in a foreign country. They were supposed to be granted by the Senate and celebrated only in Rome. Cleopatra certainly did not have the authority to grant one. Second, why was Antony showering all the gold and treasure he'd acquired in Armenia on Cleopatra, a foreign ruler, rather than the people of Rome? Yeah, why is Cleopatra getting all this loot? Exactly. It's not like she's been bankrolling you for years and years and years and maybe, just maybe, this is one time she doesn't have to devalue her currency because you've won something. I mean, I'm sure the Romans we're not thinking of that, Jen. No. Third, Antony was getting really, really above himself. This whole thing about the new Dionysus was kind of fun when it was just at parties, but now he was dressing as Dionysus before cheering crowds at official functions in Egypt while sitting on a gleaming golden throne alongside his Egyptian mistress dressed as the goddess Isis. Even their kids got their own tiny golden thrones. Julius Caesar had been stabbed to death for less. Also, Antony had just declared 13-year-old Caesarian the official son of Caesar, which was threatening to Octavian. One of the things that kept Octavian's troops loyal was that they saw him as the most legitimate heir of Caesar. If Caesar really did have a natural son out there, that challenged Octavian's position. Over in Rome, Octavian kicked his propaganda machine up a notch. Just look at Mark Antony, he said, styling himself a king and god, sitting on a golden throne, throwing himself a parade that to all intents and purposes looks like an insulting mockery of a Roman triumph and doling out Roman territories to a foreign ruler and her children. Antony was being obnoxious and arrogant in the best light. In the worst, this was a power play, a really bold and obvious one. Antony was practically begging Rome to declare war. 
It's not likely Antony meant to send that message. There was a lot of wishful thinking going on with the donations. Antony was handing out territories that in many cases he didn't even control, including Parthia, which he definitely did not control, to kids aged six and two. These were basically fantasy kingdoms. He probably saw the entire event in a completely different light than the one Octavia shown on it. He even sent letters to the Senate announcing his donations and asking for ratification, like he expected everyone would be totally fine with what he was doing and maybe even applaud him. But we don't know how he was seeing it because the propaganda is what's come down to us. Antony could have probably solved this problem by heading back to Rome after the donations and telling the Romans his side of the story. After all, a lot of people in Rome still loved Mark Antony, as skilled as Octavian was at spinning things. Nobody really liked Octavian on a personal level. All Antony had to do was roll back into town, hand out some of his awesome bear hugs and manly down-to-earth charm, somehow refrain from starting any riots. I mean, that one might be a tall ask. That is a tall order. He just had to show everyone that he was still on top, have a couple of beers, give them some of the gold he's won from invading Armenia. Well, the thing about Mark Antony is that he's the guy that you want to have a beer with. He's the kind of politician you see who you're like, yeah, I want to have a beer with that guy. I like that guy. I think that guy gets me. The only thing about Mark Antony is he's got that crazy sense of humor, right? I've been thinking about his sense of humor. We see him doing things like um, playing mean practical jokes on his wife, Fulvia, letting her think that he's dead and going around Alexander. Andrea pretending to be like an ordinary guy and spying on people and laughing about it. And it's like, this is a guy who has had zero checks on his behavior for all of his life. No one's ever said, that's not funny, Antony, stop it, to Antony. So I kind of feel like saying that he's the likable one. It's like, well, yeah, at, at a certain point, he definitely is the likable one. But there's also this other side of Mark Antony where he's just a privilege monster. I think the reason that Mark Antony is so likable is because Mark Antony is fallible. Mark Antony fucks up constantly. And I feel like he must have been really great at being like, yeah, Parthia was a really bad idea. Like just owned it and was the kind of person who owns their mistakes, makes a joke out of it, and you feel more comfortable around them. And Octavian was the complete opposite, also a privilege monster. But Octavian was the guy who, by the time he becomes Augustus, no one is allowed to say a shit word about him. And remember, when Caesar died, Antony was the one who rallied the common people to riot. And he was the person that the common people thought was speaking for them. And then he kind of just fucked off to Parthia. And now, is acting like the new Dionysus and wearing a purple robe and he's gone. Cleopatra had that effect on people because she had Caesar thinking he was going to be a god. I think that it was part of her allure. While you're with Cleopatra, you feel like a god and then you start carrying that into other areas of your life. Exactly. And he's totally not understanding how his behavior is playing to people and I think that is part of his privilege. Absolutely. So instead of going back to Rome and smoothing things out and doing all the bear hugs and drinking late at the taverns and giving out his gold, Antony stayed in Alexandria with Cleopatra for another winter and another. For the next few years, Antony threw himself into Alexandrian life. He sat by Cleopatra's side, cheering her as she adjudicated disputes, oversaw festivals, and made the economic and administrative decisions that kept Egypt afloat. For all intents and purposes, he was her consort and the father of her children, and he was home. Yeah, he was. And I think that there's something really sweet here about Mark Antony being a really supportive house husband to an ambitious wife. Absolutely. Like, this is one of those moments where, like, do you love him a little bit. 
you don't get the sense. And again, this is propaganda. Maybe he was terribly bored with this, but you don't get the sense that he was. He was like, hey, I spent all my life. I've had all these children, like eight of them, maybe, or six of them or however many. I've never actually seen what a two-year-old looks like and how much fun they are. And I've never been in one place long enough to like, I don't know, put down some of my treasure for my campaigns. I've never had the freedom to be happy to be a family man. I think deep down, he doesn't really want to rule. Like whenever we see him being the number one and making decisions, he flails, right? He flails. He's terrible at it. What Mark Antony wants is he wants to give you his good idea. He wants you to pat him on the head. And if it is actually a good idea, you enact it so he doesn't have to. And also, I think he likes, you know, this life that Cleopatra's giving him. Like he wants to drink in the taverns and wander around Alexandria like a common person and preside over festivals and judge athletic competitions and like be declared the new Dionysus and not work that hard. And Cleopatra just runs things behind the scenes at the same time. She creates this amazing life for Antony where he doesn't do any of the work and she just, you know, manages everything. And I think that this is just like his natural environment. He's going to be the most happy here. I mean, here's the thing. I think this is the first time Mark Antony gets to be kind of a celebrity who doesn't have to work hard at being Mark Antony. Like he doesn't have to prove again and again that he's a great general, that he's excellent on campaign, that everyone loves him. He just gets to be like, I'm going to judge some athletic competitions. I'm going to do some of these ceremonial things. I'm going to wear my Dionysus robe. Everyone knows me here in Alexandria. I'm Mark Antony and they love me. Imagine how that must feel. Like in Rome, you're constantly proving yourself. You're only as good as your last military campaign or senatorial speech or what have you. And here, he's just Mark Antony. He gets to be a celebrity. I mean, I can see the allure. Oh, I can totally see the allure. So this is what Mark Antony was up to in Alexandria. Just fucking about like he did in Athens. It might be impossible to believe that relations between Octavian and Antony could possibly get any worse, but they did. For the next few years, Octavian and Mark Antony continued to yell at each other from opposite sides of the Mediterranean. It wasn't all athletic contests and spying on people in Alexandria, Jen, and being the new Dionysus. It was also a lot of yelling at Octavian across the Mediterranean. I mean, I kind of feel like the only way you can have an actually good functioning relationship with Octavian is to put the Mediterranean in between you. <laughs> and even then, even then, <laughs> even then you have to yell sometimes. So Octavian accused Antony of setting himself up as a king and god in Egypt. Kind of a point to Octavian there. Antony offered to relinquish all his power in Rome and restore the Republic if Octavian would do the same and Octavian declined. Oh, that's wily, Antony. Hmm. I bet Antony was like up all night thinking of that one. <laughs> Antony was like really trying to puzzle it out and Cleopatra was like hang on Antony just just do this because it really cost Antony nothing like I don't think at this point in time he had any desire to come back into Rome but it would cost Octavian everything to deny that Octavian demanded that Antony share his spoils from Armenia with the Roman public Antony countered that Octavian hadn't even bothered to send the troops he'd promised at Tarentum. Octavian accused Antony of murdering Sextus, and Antony countered that Sextus had been executed for rebelling on Octavian's orders. All right, Antony, that's some good shots fired. The invective got personal. Antony brought up Octavian's humble roots and his tendency to skip his battles. <laughs> the skipping the battles hits home. Octavian called Antony a drunkard. <laughs> I mean, Octavian, everyone knows he's a drunkard. They've literally nicknamed him the god of wine and debauchery. Come on. Antony countered that people had to drink around Octavian just to stand him. I mean, point to Antony. Antony accused Octavian of withholding land grants for his soldiers in Italy. 
Octavian responded sarcastically that Antony was welcome to dole out land from his conquests in Parthia. Oh! oh sick burn, Octavian. Oh boy, can you imagine how, how much Cleopatra must have had to calm him down after that one? Oh, it's getting heated up in here. Open a window. Octavian called Antony past his prime, a has-been. That's below the belt. That is ageist, and I am not settling for that, Octavian. We're not here for your ageism, Octavian. Antony accused Octavian of sleeping with Julius Caesar to get into his will. Possible. I mean, it's the Julian Claudians. That's not the worst incest we're going to see from them. Antony reminded everyone of Octavian's humble roots and that there was a genuine son of Caesar in Alexandria, one whose face didn't make you want to punch it every time you saw it. Octavian shot back that Cleopatra had slept with everyone but Julius Caesar. Oh! Oh. And that Caesarian was definitely not Caesar's son. Ouch! Wow. Antony snarled that Octavian was in the habit of kidnapping and assaulting virgins. He brought up Octavian's alleged nasty habit of carrying off other people's wives during dinner parties and returning them to the table with their clothes on crooked and their hair messed up. Ew! Ew, but also Julian Claudian Playbook 101. Right, I don't know if this actually happened. I'm not sure where Antony's getting this. I wouldn't put it past Octavian. On and on and on and on and on. On the accusations of effeminacy, cowardice, bad hygiene, drunkenness, sexual deviance, and all kinds of other insults flew fast and furious, all in front of a rapt audience of basically the entire city of Rome. And you can see later on why it became so important for Octavian to change his persona. I mean, can you imagine you're coming to power just slinging garbage about both you and your opponent back and forth? I mean, it's one of those things that just makes everyone involved look bad. Exactly. So it was a great time to be a satirist, a graffiti artist, or a scurrilous poem writer, or a pamphleteer in ancient Rome. Because suddenly, there was a lot of work to be had. Octavian and Antony were the two biggest clients in town. Soon, the two were hiring people to paper the streets of Rome with pamphlets and poems and handbills denouncing each other. Vicious graffiti sprang up on the walls of buildings. Incidentally, Octavian brought up Antony's drunken buffoonery so much that Antony felt the need to publish a pamphlet called On His Drunkenness, defending himself against charges of being drunk literally all the time. If the shoe fits. Look, Antony, don't feed the troll. No doubt Cleopatra just rolled her eyes at all of this. This is just two men fighting back and forth and Cleopatra's like, I have an entire country to run, a country that gives this other country most of its wealth. I'm not going to get involved in this pissing contest. Meanwhile, money and resources rolled into Alexandria from all the territories Antony had bestowed on her, which she used to build up her army and navy. Suddenly, Egypt was starting to look militarily dangerous again, and that was making Rome twitchy. Finally, Antony was ready to start things up again in Parthia. It was 33 BC. It had been two years since his last attempt, in which he flailed terribly and slunk off home with his tail between his legs. He and Cleopatra traveled to Ephesus in Greece, where together they started assembling an army. Once again, Antony brutally taxed his eastern provinces for both money and conscripts, but Cleopatra contributed far more, a vast amount of money, troops, and ships. It was starting to look like a reprise of Mark Antony's last time in Greece about two years ago. The wine flowed, 
The dancers danced in the streets of Ephesus. Flute music echoed off the mountains. Epic feasts were thrown. Everyone hailed Mark Antony as the new Dionysus and Cleopatra as the new Isis. It was just like before, except this time, with Cleopatra by his side, everything would turn out differently. But a few months after they arrived, reality came knocking in the form of about 300 senators who'd fled Rome. They had news. Octavian had staged a coup. The coup had gone down like this. While he had been living in Alexandria and waging his war of words with Octavian, Antony had also been taking a page from Caesar's playbook. He'd left senators loyal to him in Rome to make sure that Octavian never built up too much real power. But in January of 32 BC, a new pro-Antony consul had trashed Octavian to his face. Octavian retaliated by storming the Senate House at the head of a group of armed guards, intimidating the pro-Antony faction into silence. He announced he had some damning evidence against Mark Antony, which he planned to reveal in due time. The pro-Antony senators knew better than to wait around for that. They fled to Greece and Antony. Antony was now in a very bad position in Rome. His supporters in the Senate had been driven out. War, the senators warned him, was all but inevitable if he didn't ditch Cleopatra immediately and work on repairing his image and building up support in Rome again. They strongly advised him to send Cleopatra back to Egypt, and at first, Antony agreed. But Cleopatra wasn't going to go meekly back to Alexandria, and you can't blame her. The last time Mark Antony had left her in Alexandria to go patch things up with Octavian, he'd wound up married to someone else. He was officially still married to that someone else, by the way. If Cleopatra allowed herself to be sent home, it was highly likely Antony would wind up in settled domesticity with his other family again, Octavia and their two daughters. She could not let him out of her sight. On a certain level, she can't trust Mark Antony, right? Yeah, she absolutely can't trust Mark Antony. I mean, Mark Antony's problem here is he's been in Egypt for a long time and he's enjoying his life and possibly really desperately in love with Cleopatra. And he kind of still wants to keep one foot in Rome, but he's also really aware that Rome is a hot mess and, you know, what am I doing this for? But on the other hand, Antony's power in Rome is the reason Cleopatra has her throne. Like, if she wasn't backed by a powerful Roman ruler, she could be facing a lot more insurrection at home. So on some level, he kind of needs to keep power in Rome in order to maintain their life there. Exactly. And I think that's part of Antony's problem. I see this a lot being an expat. You know, there's a big part of you that's really tied to your home country, but you're in this new country and you've been there for a while. And that's kind of where your life is. And when these 300 senators come knocking on his door and they're like, Antony, you have to get back. The country needs you. This is really important. He's of this mind of like, I have to go back. I have to do this. This is where I'm supposed to be. And the thing is, too, about people pleasing, like I was in this relationship once with someone who I would call a people pleaser who exhibits like a lot of Mark Antony like traits. I don't lump everyone who identifies that way in. Yeah. And I, I also think you have a tendency to people please. Not everyone is a people pleaser all the time. Of course. So I had this relationship with this person who would do things like I see Mark Antony doing here to Cleo, where in my experience, it looked like this. I'd be like, you know, I really wish that your mom could like maybe get a hotel room instead of coming to stay with us every weekend for the next month. Just like maybe we could do like two weekends a month she stays here and two weekends a month you go visit her or she gets a hotel room or something but this is really hard on me and my partner would be like oh yeah sure totally that's I totally understand and then he'd talk to his mom later that night and then he'd be like so my mom's staying with us all month and like I'd just be like what just happened there sure and I mean I have had people pleasing tendencies most of my life I'm married to someone who is wonderful but he's not a people pleaser and I obviously host a podcast with someone who's wonderful but not a people pleaser Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> 
as someone who people pleases, what you're trying to do constantly is compromise. You're trying to make sure that everyone can be okay with the situation. And the problem with that is it took me a lot of time. It took me being married to my husband and having Jenny as, as a close friend to really build boundaries. Someone who has people pleasing tendencies, it's really hard to build those boundaries. I mean, I've been married a long time. It took me probably the first six years of our marriage to learn how to do it. And you have to stick to it. That's the other thing, because there's this party that's like, oh, I don't want this person to be mad. And maybe I'll just like give a little bit on this. And you can't. But when you're dealing with people who are not people pleasers, you have to remember that sometimes you can't give for what they want. You have to make them bend a little bit. And the problem Anthony has here and where I'd say he's got a real fail is he should have gone back to Rome, even though Cleopatra didn't want him to go. He goes back there. He's got a whole other family there. That's it's not like he's just there by himself. The problem with Mark Antony is he is a privilege monster. But there's a part of him that's like, well, definitely be back. Cleo's my main squeeze. But also, like, I could chill in Rome for a couple of years. Octavia's aging like a fine wine. I like it. I got a couple kids. And Cleopatra is kind of like, if you go back there, you're not going to come back to me. So Cleopatra was stuck in this crap situation with Mark Antony. All his senator friends who just come from Rome were urging him to get rid of her, to come back to Rome. So she enlisted one of her generals, a guy named Canidius, to speak on her behalf. Canidius slung an arm around Antony's shoulder, pulled him aside, and gave him a man-to-man talking to. He said, look, getting rid of Cleopatra would be shooting yourself in the foot, buddy. Cleopatra's the one bankrolling your army. She's the one your navy is loyal to. What do you think it would do to their morale if you were to just summarily dismiss their queen? Besides, rejecting his eastern mistress would send a very bad message indeed to his other eastern allies. Meanwhile, Cleopatra demanded angrily for Antony to explain to her how she was, and this is a quote from Plutarch, inferior in intelligence to any one of the princes who took part in the expedition. She, who for a long time had governed so large a kingdom by herself and by long association with Antony, had learned to manage large affairs. What she's reminding him is, number one, I ruled on my own for a long time. Number two, I'm not a liability. I control like the richest area in the empire. I control the grain. Like I know what I'm doing. I've been with you now for like quite a long time. I've picked up a few tricks. Well, that is totally her buttering him up. She knows exactly what to say to him to get him on side. That's her stage managing him. So Plutarch tells us that behind the scenes, Cleopatra had bribed Canidius to stand up for her. And actually, this may be the truth. Modern archaeologists found a piece of papyrus dated February 33 BC. It had been used to wrap a mummy. It granted lucrative tax exemptions to someone named Canidius. At the bottom, in handwriting distinct from the rest of the document, is a phrase in Greek that means, make it so, or so be it. Because the Ptolemies always personally signed their official documents to prevent forgeries, this is extremely likely to be the only example of Cleopatra's handwriting ever found. As he always did with Cleopatra, Antony caved. Cleopatra got to stay. And not long after the senator's defection, the couple sailed from Ephesus to Athens to continue their preparations for war in Parthia. So the last time Antony had been in Athens, he'd been with his wife Octavia. The reminders of that visit were all over the city. The people of Athens had loved Octavia, if you recall. They declared her the new Athena. There were statues of her and Antony up all over the city dressed in their godly regalia. Everyone still had fond memories of Octavia's visit, which they brought up constantly. Oh, do you remember that one time Octavia was in town? Oh my god, we had such a good time! And did Did you see her earrings? I mean, oh, those pearls. I know, Octavia, she's so good at just, you know, everything. She's just so good at things. She's so good. She's so clever. She's so nice. 
And you know what? She's like fancy without being over the top fancy. Right. She doesn't make a whole thing of it. You just know she's fancy. You just know it. Unlike some. Even when she's just wearing like a normal pala, you know it's like high quality, but it's not gaudy. She's not flaunting her wealth. It's so nice of her. Mm, It's so refreshing. So Cleopatra took one look around at all this nonsense and went, um, no, no. She immediately went on a bedazzle and charm offensive, showering the people of Athens with money, feasts, and parties, pulling out all the stops to erase Octavia's memory forever. And it worked. Before long, the people were pulling down statues of Octavia and putting up statues of Cleopatra. Of course it worked. She's a Ptolemy. The populace voted to shower honors on Cleopatra in return and sent a group of its leading citizens, including Antony, who'd been made an honorary citizen of Athens in his last visit, to visit her lavish guesthouse and bring her these honors. Antony called her down, stood next to her on the stoop, and delivered a speech praising her to the skies in front of Athens' leading citizens. Lots of accounts come down to us of Antony's besotted behavior toward Cleopatra in Athens during this time. He'd always been in love with Cleopatra, but now he was either extra besotted or he had something to prove after having almost allowed himself to be convinced to send her home. In Athens, Antony fawned over Cleopatra. He gave her lavish gifts, honors, and awards, including the entire contents of the Library of Pergamum, which was over 200,000 volumes. Because Cleopatra, like me, was a book nerd or scroll nerd. She loved books, which probably would have been scrolls at the time. Yeah. One time, in front of an entire banquet hall, he gave Cleopatra a foot massage because he'd lost some bet with her. They were always, like, betting all kinds of weird shit. He compelled people to salute her as his royal mistress. When Antony was dispensing justice at the tribunals, Cleopatra would send him love notes inscribed on tablets of onyx and crystal. I love that her love notes are on onyx and crystal tablets, which he would stop his official business to read, no doubt with a goofy grin on his face. Once, when a famous orator was speaking in the forum, Cleopatra passed by in a litter, and Antony leaped up from his seat, racing out of the building to follow after her. In practical, unromantic Rome, where people were laughed at for being too into their spouses, everyone thought this was pathetic. Does Julius Caesar have something to share with the group? Julius Caesar can stay quiet no longer. Julius Caesar cannot believe the disgrace Antony made of himself chasing after the lady Cleopatra like a lovesick teenager. Come on, Julius Caesar, you would have done the same thing. She's worth it, right? Julius Caesar would not have made such a fool of himself in front of everyone. That's not how a Roman woos a woman. Oh, really? How does a Roman woo a woman, Julius Caesar? With poetry, Miss Williamson, with beautiful, articulate verse. Do you have some articulate verse that you'd like to share with the group? You're not ready for my verse. I'm so ready. I'm so ready for your verse, Julius Caesar. You must promise that you will tell no one of this. I'll tell no one but the maybe 3,000 odd people listening to this podcast. How about that? Well, you can take this out in editing, right? I mean, I could. That doesn't mean I will. Ask Chen about that. (laughs) I mean, Kukulin exists for that reason. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, you're going to edit out all of Kukulin, right? And I was like, no, this is gold. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Julius Caesar, don't be a chicken. Julius Caesar is not a chicken. I am the man who crossed the Rubicon with an army. Not afraid to read some poetry to a sort of a little girl. All right, prove it. All right. Julius Caesar wandered lonely as a cloud. His lady Cleopatra was nowhere to be found. She'd strayed from the path that was right into the arms of a scoundrel by night. 
Julius Caesar wandered, lonely as a cloud, lost from his love, sorrow, a bow. Isn't that plagiarized from somewhere? <laughs> he totally ripped it off. Wordsworth, like. <laughs> Julius Caesar knows nothing about plagiarism. Julius Caesar lived in the BCs. I suspect Julius Caesar has the internet, though, because Julius Caesar watches HBO now a lot. Julius Caesar does not know a Wordsworth. You certainly didn't have tea with him last week. Maybe said Wordsworth took Julius Caesar's words for his own. I strongly suspect that's not the case because your poetry didn't really come down to us. A lot of people say that's the best thing about your poetry is that it wasn't preserved. Well, that is scandalous, Miss Williamson. I know. I'm so mean to you. What are you going to do about it? I shall go now and watch Tiny Home Nation, and then I shall come <laughs> back in a few episodes' time and talk about how I will crucify you like I did those pirates, the last people who had the nerve to criticize my poetry. Okay, well, I'm not going to hold my breath for that, Julius Caesar. He's gone, Jenny. <laughs> Does he really watch Tiny Home Nation? I can hear the theme song to Tiny Home Nation, actually. <laughs> oh my god, Julius Caesar has branched out from Game of Thrones. He also, likes nailed it. He's totally branched out. He's an excellent baker, but he mostly makes cakes of himself. Like, what is it, like giant Julius Caesar-shaped cakes? Yes. You know, that's a lot of fondant. I wonder where he gets fondant in the afterlife. Okay, so... Before Julius Caesar completely derailed us, we were talking about how Antony was shamelessly fawning over Cleopatra and Alexandria, and how everyone in Rome thought that was really pathetic. But consider your source here. Most of this is from intel brought to Octavian from Antony's enemies, because as many people defected from Octavian to Antony, there was also a steady stream going the other way around. Friends of Mark Antony's who could tell which way the political tides were turning and had decided for whatever reason that Octavian was a sure bet. There's actually a clue that Antony was not completely off his rocker over Cleopatra, or at least with the presence of mind not to appear that way. At some point during all this, Antony wrote Octavian a private letter in which he doesn't come off as a man who's lost his mind. He does come off as kind of a dick. He makes light of his relationship with Cleopatra and overall sounds kind of bewildered by Octavian's viciousness over the whole thing. There are lots of translations of this letter, and this version comes from Goldsworthy's Antony and Cleopatra. It captures the bluntness and vulgarity with which Antony wrote. So here it is, Mark Antony talking to Octavian. Quote, why have you changed? Is it because I'm screwing the queen? <laughs> such such an Antony thing to say. Is it because I'm screwing the queen? Such, he's such a dick. Is she my wife? Have I just started this or has it been going on for nine years? How about you? Is it only Livia you screw? What is this? What is this? What is this? Antony? It's just such locker room talk. I mean, people in lockers don't actually talk this way. In locker rooms, people in lockers. What the fuck am I even saying? It's been a long time with Antony and you're drunk. We're going back to who people are screwing in this letter. So congratulations. If when you read this letter, you have not been inside Tertulla or Tarentula or Raphila or Sal Salvia Titizen Titizenium. <laughs> Titizenium. What? Who the fuck are these people? I have no idea. They must be like either women he's screwed or a high-ranking woman of society. So he finishes his letter with, does it really matter where or in whom you dip your wick? I mean... <laughs> Mark Antony, you're such a gentleman. I just want to punch him. So we just want to punch everyone in this episode now. So that one phrase, is she my wife, that has driven historians nuts for centuries. In the Latin, it can be translated as either, is she my wife, as a question, or she is my wife, as a statement. And I've seen it translated as both. 
A lot of modern historians go with the question version because of the sentence structure. It's surrounded by other bluntly stated rapid fire questions. Stylistically, I guess it makes sense as a question, but that doesn't mean it is a question. It's kind of tangential there. But there's no proof Antony and Cleopatra were ever officially married that I know of. They could have been, but if they had been, chances are it would have been a massive ceremony and everyone would have heard about it. And Octavian doesn't mention it in his propaganda. And he absolutely would have used that against Antony, especially if he married Cleopatra while he was still married to Octavia. But whether or not Antony and Cleopatra were officially married, one thing was for sure. Antony and Octavia were over. Because around this time in 32 BC, Antony divorced Octavia for good. She'd been living in his house, caring for one of his sons with Fulvia, as well as their two daughters together and her own three kids with Marcellus. What's the count of kids in Octavia's household now? One kid from Antony and Fulvia... Two daughters from Antony and Octavia, that's three, and then three kids with Marcellus. That's six kids living in Octavia's house. Living in Octavia's home for wayward children. Which was also Antony's house in Rome. <laughs> which actually makes total sense because he is the biggest wayward child of them all. Totally. That was six children in total who, as far as I knew, were living in Antony's house in Rome with Octavia until Antony divorced Octavia. Finally, Octavia would have to leave his house. So Octavia gathered her brood and left, weeping and fretting once again about being a woman who caused a war. And Octavian wanted Antony's head on a plate. But here's the thing. As vicious as the war of words had been between Octavian and Antony so far, it was just that, a war of words. The public didn't want another civil war just so Octavian could settle his personal beef with Mark Antony. People weren't entirely convinced Antony had done anything particular to go to war over. And Octavian might have been the power in Rome at the moment, but he wasn't the emperor yet, and he couldn't go to war without public and senate approval. So once again, Octavian kicked his propaganda machine up yet another notch, because if you thought there wasn't another notch, we were at the top notch, there's more notches, you guys. But this time, instead of demonizing Mark Antony, he focused on emasculating him. Antony was whipped, he said. Look at how he massaged Cleopatra's feet at banquets and trailed after her litter like a lovesick puppy. Look at how he botched his own Parthia campaign so he could go home sooner with Cleopatra, refused Roman summons to stay in Alexandria, even given up his post as consul the day he'd been granted it. In 34 BC, Antony had been granted the position of consul in absentia. He was busy being Dionysus in Alexandria at the time, so he passed it up. Surprise, surprise, Antony doesn't want to go to work when he could just be drinking in Alexandria. I mean, I can't really blame him there. Right. Once again, Antony's friends urged him privately to rethink his relationship with Cleopatra. She was a major political liability, and the situation was becoming more and more untenable. And eventually, some of Antony's friends who were still in Rome, there were, you know, like two of those left, sent a guy named Gaminius to try and talk some sense into him. Cleopatra, who was so widely known for her hospitality, was less than hospitable to Gaminius. She suspected he'd been sent by Octavia to undermine her. At dinner, she seated him at the kids' table and degraded him with insults and sarcasm. She made him the butt of jokes. Finally, she stood up and demanded, in the midst of a drunken, riotous crowd, that Gaminius come out with his purpose for being there. Frostily, Gaminius replied that it was probably better to talk about this when everyone was sober, but he couldn't resist adding that things would be better all around if Antony would send her packing back to Egypt. I mean, that is not waiting until everyone is sober, Gaminius. 
No, it is not. Antony was furious, but Cleopatra's response was even more chilling. She complimented Gaminius for his honesty and thanked him for not making her torture the truth out of him. Gaminius wasn't an idiot. He fled back to Rome immediately afterward. Another person to leave Cleopatra's court for Octavians was a guy named Plancus. Plancus had been in Antony's inner circle for years and was a key founding member of the inimitable... Inimitable? Did I say that right? Inimitable. 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 Inimitable livers. He'd been the one to stop Cleopatra from dissolving her second earring at the most expensive banquet in the world. At one memorable banquet in Alexandria, he'd shown up painted blue, wearing nothing but a fishtail and a reed crown. As you do. And to the great amusement of the diners, he'd done his best impression of a sea nymph, which involved a lot of wriggling around on the floor. He had a weird sense of humor. Well, you kind of feel like Plonkus is either the kind of guy who spent a lot of time working on those abs and he wants everyone to see him, or he's the kind of guy who spent no time working on his abs and is super confident with his body and wants everyone to see it. Like, either way, I approve. Jen's into it. I kind of am. Anyone who's got the guts to like be totally naked and decide they're going to put on a fishtail and wriggle around in front of me. I mean, okay. I know the way to your heart now, Jen. <laughs> uh, but you can't talk to me because you're not wearing underwear. Oh, right. So you just can't see anything. Silent. Utterly silent, butt naked wriggling. And Jen will be down. Nope. Silent. Anyway, so now the butt naked, blue painted, floor wriggling good time was over. We don't know why Plancus switched sides and returned to Rome, but he did, and he brought with him some serious intel. Plancus had been a witness to Mark Antony's will, and he gave Octavian all the dirt. The minute he heard what Plancus had to say, Octavian marched to the temple of the Vestal Virgins, wrested Antony's will from them, and read it aloud to a reluctant, uncomfortable senate. At first, the senators, even pro-Octavian senators, strongly disapproved. This was a violation of norms. A man's will was supposed to be private until after he died. Octavian had severely overstepped in taking the will out in public before its time. And he disobeyed the Vestal Virgins. But as Octavian read, the senators began to grow more and more incensed. Antony's will set the donations in stone, bequeathing a number of Roman territories to Cleopatra's kids. It named Caesarian Julius Caesar's legitimate heir. There were other things in there that were really bad, but what got people riled up the most was the part where Antony requested that if he died in Rome, his body should be buried in Alexandria with Cleopatra. Antony's will seemed to spell out loud and clear where his loyalties lay. And it confirmed, in a document witnessed and ratified and guarded by the Vestal Virgins, that everything Octavian had been saying about him all these years was true. All that stuff about Mark Antony being a dissolute, drunken, incompetent, totally subservient to his Egyptian mistress, who cared for Egypt far more than Rome, was all true. Who actually seemed to be saying in his will that when he died, large swaths of the Roman Empire were to be transferred to Cleopatra and her children. Yeah, and that was the big thing. He was basically taking Roman territory and giving it to Egypt. Yeah, which is horrifying. From a Roman perspective, yeah. From an Egyptian perspective, quids in. But from a Roman perspective, that is awful. A few years ago, the streets had erupted into riots when Octavian had suggested going to war with Sextus Pompey. And not much had changed since then. The people were tapped out, overtaxed, and sick of war. They would need something really special to convince them, and Octavian gave it to them. Octavian sucked at a lot of things. We've been over that a lot. But he was a master propagandist. This time around, he focused on Cleopatra, that promiscuous, seductive, completely unscrupulous queen who embodied everything the Romans most hated, decadent Easterners, arrogant monarchs, and most of all, women who got above themselves. 
Women who had any voice at all and could do anything. Women were supposed to work through men. Yeah. Or they could be, you know, not working at all and just flopping around looking beautiful. That's how you get into Jen's heart, by the way. Flop around and look beautiful. Paint yourself blue. (laughs) Not necessarily, but I have to give him credit for it. Like, that is a ballsy thing to do. (laughs) Oh, so much confidence. Absolutely. So much confidence, whether or not you should have it or shouldn't have it. You know what? Everyone should have that much confidence. Think to yourself, today is the day I'm going to paint myself blue and flop around in a fishtail. Goddamn right, Jen. <laughs> Try to have all the confidence of an ancient Roman in blue paint and a fishtail and nothing else. It's like, hey, I am here. I'm in a fishtail. I'm going to flop. Everyone knows exactly who I am in this moment. And I'm proud and comfortable with who I am in this moment. So Octavian's invective was on fire here. We're getting back to how Octavian is now focusing his propaganda machine not on Antony, but on Cleopatra. Cleopatra had clearly sunk her talons deep into Mark Antony and sucked everything Roman and good out of him. He was nothing but a drunkard, I'm going to keep bringing it up, and an incompetent and a total dupe made a total shell of his former self by Egyptian sex and drugs. Cleopatra had contaminated him, beguiled him with magic and potions, just as she'd done with Julius Caesar. All the sex magic. (laughs) That's right. She's got the sex magic happening. And Octavian added. Because he's not done. I am not done. Do not try and stop me. I am on fire. Right. And Octavian added, Cleopatra wouldn't stop at dominating Mark Antony. Oh, no. If you think it stops there, you have got another thing coming. The talent does not stop with Antony. It continues. She wouldn't stop until she had done to all of Rome what she'd done to Antony. Antony had basically promised to make Alexandria the Roman Empire's new capital. The lavish donations Cleopatra had wrung out of him were just the first step in her takeover. Her ultimate aim was to take over Rome. In fact, this very minute, no doubt she was seducing Mark Antony with her sex magic into marching up the Via Sacra with an army in tow. Antony's plan was to grant Cleopatra the city of Rome as one of her territories, just as he'd done with all those other Roman provinces. The public ate this up with a spoon all these years, no matter how heated Octavian's rhetoric. They'd been reluctant to turn on Mark Antony, but they were happy to think the worst of Cleopatra. So in late summer of 31 BC, Octavian presided over an ancient and bloody ritual in the temple of the war goddess Bologna. This is a ritual he may have made up. He dipped a spear into the blood of a sacrificed animal threw it at a patch of sacred ground and declared war, not against Mark Antony, but against Cleopatra. So we're going to leave you there with that cliffhanger. We're just going to leave you there sitting in a toxic stew of xenophobia, racism, and misogyny. Have fun! Have fun! (laughs) This is what we do as a podcast. (laughs) We're going to be back in two weeks. So in the meantime, connect with us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you want more of us in the meantime, we have a Patreon where you can listen to extra episodes just for subscribers. These are shorter episodes. They've been so far between about 10 and 30 minutes long that deal with things we didn't get to cover in our longer episodes. So starting at just $2 a month, you can subscribe and get more episodes from us in your feed. And for $10 a month, you can suggest topics. So what have we got in our Patreon feed right now, Jenny? Well, Pompey and the Pirates was the first one we launched. That's about how Pompey cleared up the Mediterranean pirate problem in like about a month. Uh, We also have Julius Caesar critiques the Battle of Winterfell. If you have ever wondered how Julius Caesar would more successfully take on the army of the undead than they did at Winterfell. Give it a listen. Yeah, we've got Tuda, the Illyrian pirate queen. That's a good one. 
Not done with the pirates. Oh, we love pirates. And we love giving you tales of strong women. And dropping on December 5th, we have King Herod and Cleopatra wouldn't touch you with a barge pole, part one. That's a pretty great episode. It's got a lot of intrigue in it. Oh, we also have the episode that's coming up or it's already dropped. I forget what we scheduled and when. (laughs) I think it's already out. Yeah. So we've got more about Lepidus. If you want to know about his life and times, we've got a mini-sode on him. And he is very much the butters of the ancient world, but he had a fascinating life. And for a lot of reasons, we weren't able to cover it in these arcs. A lot of times we see these people who are sort of in the periphery and it's a really nice deep dive into into him. Yeah, sometimes we just want to cover people in more detail, but we don't have time in the longer arc. So we got the littlest triumvir. And remember, when we say minisodes, the episodes are usually at least 20 minutes. Yeah, usually. I think we've got a few that are shorter, but they're definitely just episode-sized at this point. Like, there are some that are longer than some of our initial just regular episodes from the very beginning of this podcast. So you can find all of this at patreon.com forward slash ancient history fangirl. And if you're able to, please join. Yes, please do. So we have some Patreon members to call it and thank, by the way. I think it's just one. Jessica Macri. Thank you so much. I apologize if I mispronounced your name. I hope I didn't. <laughs> thank you so much. The podcast isn't free to produce or maintain, and we can use your help to keep it going. The Patreon is a great way to support us to get special bonus episodes. You can find the link on our homepage at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or at patreon.com forward slash ancienthistoryfangirl. But if you're not ready to sign up for a monthly thing, we get it. We totally understand. You can also make a one-time donation to our Ko-Fi account. The link is on the homepage of our website at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or you can check out our merch. We have some amazing merch going on right now. We really do. And there's going to be a shirt box blanket and I need that in my life like yesterday. There's a Pompey blanket. That's actually really cool. I want to get that. And if you're not in the place to give us money, then leave us a review. But only if it's a nice review. Like, if you're not going to leave a nice review, it's okay. We get it. You don't like us. Why are you still listening? This is a long ass <laughs> episode. Why are you listening to this? <laughs> Go do something else. Why do you hate listening to us? You could be gardening. You could be making muffins. If you do like us, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We always love hearing from you guys. It makes such a difference. And on those days where we're like, oh, my God, eight hours of research and writing. What am I going to do? We just think because of you, we're going to keep going. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks. 